as you learn more and more about disease, prevention is the key, man. It, like, why get sick in the first place? Don't get sick. Don't come, you know what I mean? Like, why, why are we going to wait till you're end stage or sick as a dog before we try and provide you with help? Like, no. Let's be smarter with our minds, resources, and approaches. Like, it just doesn't make sense when you think about it, really. Like, you all would, like, a lot of time we're just putting band-aids on, like, you know what I mean? Like, let's get to the root cause and really stop you from entering the door. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. All right, guys, in this episode, I sit down with Dr. Kwajo Karamantang, a palliative care and intensive care physician based in Ottawa, Canada. Now he has a ton of energy and passion, which you will certainly see come through in this conversation. And although Dr. Karamantang treats critically ill patients day to day in the ICU, he also has a great enthusiasm for keeping patients out of the hospital in the first place by using lifestyle to prevent disease. And he talks about a lot of these topics on his own podcast, Solving Healthcare. He's also the founder of the Resource Optimization Network, a multidisciplinary research group working to reduce health spending, make the ICU more efficient, and improve access to palliative care services. Dr. Karamanting's role in the ICU has put him at the forefront of caring for acutely ill COVID-19 patients this year, and his experience as a palliative doctor over the years gives him a very unique perspective on the challenges facing patients and their families at the end of life. Dr. Karamanting was also one of only two Black students in his medical school class and is one of the few Black doctors practicing in his hospital today. He's keenly aware of the demographic imbalance in medicine and the resulting challenges that Black individuals must overcome to have the same opportunities as their peers. He's recently launched a healthcare mentorship program to help Black students bridge this gap. I was really excited to hear from Dr. Karamanting on all of these hot topics and plenty more. We covered a lot of ground in the conversation. It really might be one of my favorites to date, although I know I do say that after almost every episode. So before we dive in, we do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, we'll get started with the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am here with Dr. Kwajo Karamantang, and I am so excited about this conversation because we just recently had a conversation on your podcast, Solving Healthcare, and now it's your turn um, and learn all about your story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can I just say, Julie, I'm just, I've been so hyped about this for a long time because you and I are very similar. We see the, the need to talk about prevention. We put our voices out there and, uh, and we, on our show, we call it changing the boogie, Ch- talking about what we need to do to make our, our, our system better, our, our patients better. So I am jacked. I'm so happy to be here. I am so excited. Yes, we are definitely kindred spirits and fighting the good fight um, in that way. So uh, let's just start at the beginning. I would love to hear a little bit about your, I know you've, you know, you played hockey most of your life, you're into sports, but your life growing up, and then how did you end up pursuing a career in medicine? Yeah, so I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada from uh, immigrant parents from Ghana. And being in Edmonton, I was definitely the only black kid doing anything, you know. Um, so it was a very unique experience, which I think we'll talk about later on. But yeah, I, I had a, a group, one of four kids, very happy home, a very like loving home, a great neighborhood for friends and, and playing tons outside, which That's I'm a big... Uh, advocate for our kids to do too. So a lot of street hockey, basketball, soccer, football, all of that. And um, I actually had childhood asthma. And uh, so I spent actually a lot of time in hospital. And uh, I just remember at times being scared. And my pediatrician, Dr. Conradi, rest Mm -hmm. in peace, he'd walk into the room whenever you're having a tough time breathing, you're scared. And he had this amazing presence. He would just come in and put your hand on you, realizing that, helping you realize like it's going to be okay. And you would just settle the nerves, 
and he just had this amazing ability to make things better. And I remember looking to my mom and saying, like, I want to be Dr. Conradi. I want to be just like this guy to be able to provide people with that that safety and that, and that healing ability. And so I had a bit of a circular uh, route to getting into medicine, but uh, eventually did that. I, I um, you know, I think the kids call them gap years. Like I took a couple of years to, to get in and which by the way was awesome. I was got to travel. I was a bartender. It's how I met my wife. Um, but yeah, then eventually got into medicine uh, I knew I wanted to do something w- seeing relatively acute patients, like mm-hmm. uh, high paced. Um, and so I remember being at Calgary Foothills as a as a medical student, and I walked into the ICU, mm-hmm. and I was like, "This is my home, baby. This <laughs> is awesome." I, you know, there was two trauma patients coming in, one with a really bad back uh, um, motorcycle accident, one was a burn, one got hit in the head with a, by a grizzly um, GI bleed coming in. We did a tracheostomy or at the bedside later that day. I, it, it was a, the team was operating at full cylinders. We're getting a ton of teaching. I'm like, this is it. This is it for me. I, I know I got to do this. So <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make this story short, but once I saw that, I knew this was a, the way for me. So I, you know, I did internal medicine. I also did palliative care training and then eventually landed in the ICU and, uh, and haven't looked back since. Wow. That's amazing. That's so cool that you, you sort of felt it right away that you knew that's the environment you wanted to be in. Yeah. Cause I mean, honestly, it, when you have, cause I, I, you know, especially playing team sports, like I grew up playing, like hockey was my main sport. You love and thrive that team environment to be able to say to your colleague, like, I'm not sure what's going on. Do you have any ideas? And whether it's a doc, whether it's a respiratory therapist, whether it's a head nurse, giving that input and, and putting your heads together to, to salvage a life. Like it's, it's amazing. And then you never know the part, the part that people maybe can, uh, goes underestimated is like you never know what's coming through the door you never know what kind of a day you're walking into and that's to me is exciting you got to be ready to go that's super exciting i think the the combination too of palliative medicine and icu is very interesting and i don't know if that's more common um in canada but i think in in the u.s people either go one route or the other and you don't mm-hmm. often see people who are trained at least in my experience i haven't met a lot of people who are trained in both so can you talk about that? Yeah, no, that's a great question because I, I, I honestly I get it, Julie, all the time about uh, you know how can you be in a specialty that seems like so on either extreme, and the thing is that in ICU about twenty percent of our patients will die, you know, and 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 so to be able to you know, not only treat their symptoms, but also communicate well about the dying process to their families, the patients and their families mm-hmm. is something that's really important to me. And, and honestly, when you look at the whole dying experience, this, these are lifelong impacts on family. Like the way d- dad or mom dies is going to be imprinted on their in their mind forever. So whatever like we can do to really alleviate some of those stressors and the pains. And I, I, to me, I take a lot of pride in that, like knowing that how you communicated, how you didn't put all the onus on the family, making them feel guilty about some decisions that they're making, the way you make it clear that you're not going to let mom or dad suffer. Mm-hmm. That really has a huge impact in their lives. And so that's why I take a lot of pride in that. And that's where kind of the overlay is with the palliative care. And it, admittedly, it's not, um, I think, you know, it's a small community in, in Canada. Like, I think there's only about eight or nine of us total that have dual training. But um, some, so I'm certainly proud that we've uh, done that. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes so much sense You that, you know, more people or almost everyone should have both because you think about in a lot of settings, it's like one approach or the other, or like the family decides they're going to, move to more of a palliative route and it's like the whole team switches over and there's not as much continuity versus, mm-hmm. you know, if you're their ICU doctor, but you can already be 
there and be mindful of these things um, depending, you know, what's happening. I think that can be really powerful because it just, it takes so much time to build up trust with your team. And then all of a sudden it switches and it, it can make it harder sometimes. Yeah. And that's exactly how I, I'm really glad you made that point, Julie, because it's all about trust and rapport. They want to know that they, that they, when it comes to these decisions, they want it to come from someone that they believe in and that they have that trust in. And when you've been at the bedside with them, trying to resuscitate, trying to salvage their loved one's life, and then you, and things aren't going well, and or they're not able to achieve their goals, for example, of independent living, mm-hmm. you come up to them and saying like, you know, dad, I think it's time. Like, dad, we've really tried. I don't think dad's going to be able to golf again or, you know, play with his grandkids again. Like, it means a lot coming from the team that you've built that rapport yeah. with. Yeah. So it's a great, it's a really good point. Yeah. And would you mind, I probably should have asked this earlier, but just for people listening, the difference between maybe the ICU approach, palliative medicine and hospice, because a lot of times I think those those things get confused. Oh, that's a that's actually a really good point. So um, there's a lot of overlap. So intensive care medicine is basically anybody coming in needing some form of life support. So you're needing to be like on a ventilator, like, you know, there's a lot of COVID talk. So I think more and more people know what a ventilator is now. Um, and then anytime you talk about palliative medicine, it's a, it's a, it's a spectrum. It's basically, we are there to try and, you know, help you transition when it comes to end of life. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're dying in that, in the next 10 minutes, it could be it could mean that you're dying in the next two years or like say for example if you have ALS or Lou Gehrig's formerly known as Lou Gehrig's disease um and then hospice is like truly you're at the end it's like when you're truly focusing on your care on comfort you go to a site that is you know just making sure you're not having any pain you're not having anxiety you're not feeling short of breath you are not suffering at all and that's just the prime and only focus at that point. Um, so yeah, usually when, at least locally, when you're in the hospice site, you're usually got a pro net, a prognosis of like less than, you know, four to six weeks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are the kind of, uh, yeah, the, the different things. Yeah. Thank you for that. Cause I think a lot of people, especially when they hear palliative medicine, they think, Oh, we're completely given up, or they they confuse it maybe with hospice. But it, like you said, it doesn't mean that maybe your life is ending within days or months. It could be years, but you're just mm-hmm. taking a little bit different approach and trying to maximize the quality of those of that time you have left. Absolutely, and ironically, I just go quick plug for uh, palliative medicine. There's a study about it's ten years old now that when we looked at stage four lung cancer patients and they got randomized to either get palliative care early or just standard care. And the ones that got palliative care early, like their quality of life metrics were better. They went to the hospital less often. Their symptoms were better controlled. And ironically, they lived longer. <laughs> it's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you've obviously been with a lot of patients at the end of their life. And that's a really unique vantage point that a lot of people don't have. And I think probably provides you with a lot of insight. Is there, is there anything that you can share that you've learned from being with people during that time um, or that's, that's had a big impact on you? Oh my goodness. You I'm might sure get me, definitely. you might get me to well up a little bit here, but it is Julie, it truly, I'll say this. First of all, it truly is a privilege to be with families at this time. It really is. Cause you have this, you, you get this insight into what made them special. You know, you hear about Auntie Pat, and how, you know, her cooking was awful, but we still still ate it anyway. And everyone's laughing and everyone's crying. They're hugging. And you're part of that. And um, it, it really is um, a gift to be able to be part of uh, a family's experience like that. But, you know, it's it sounds cheesy too, but all the kind of lessons you kind of hear about, um, about what matters in life, you you constantly get a reminder of like, you know, Nobody wished they worked longer. Nobody wished they uh, spent more time at the office. Every time, it's, I wish I spent more time with my family. I wish I connected with that, my cousin or my, my sister or 
my relative that we've that that's been uh, disconnected with years ago. The amount of times where like, oh, I just want to see my daughter one more time. Mm-hmm. You know, all these kind of things where you you know those relationships and those connections really really matter. Um, it, it's a it's a wonderful like reminder as a as a human being as a doc to hug your kids let your wife know or your spouse know how much you love them Mm -hmm. give that that call to mom you know even though it's out of the blue you know she's it's been a while since you talked to mom you're not gonna regret that stuff Mm -hmm. and so to me this has been a constant reminder doing the work that we do and the other the other thing too by the way is that life could like life can change on a dime mm-hmm. on a dime like the amount of 20 year olds that we i've seen die with that are completely healthy and unfortunately get a horrible uh leukemia or lymphoma the mama that's you know not even 40 yet with three kids that are having to say goodbye to their kids for the last time like all these stories that you see in front of you for healthy people that didn't do anything to deserve what they their what has happened to them and um and a lot of that can just one diagnosis so that call to the doctor all or that visit to the doctor and you find out about your cancer or that accident like all that could just change like that so just don't wait is i guess my lesson like if you're thinking about doing something that you've always wanted to do or you wanted to connect with somebody that you you've always wanted to um build that relationship do it today like that's that's a uh one of the gifts that i get from doing the job that i do wow wow that's great advice and something that i think so many of us maybe push back because of we get caught up in our day-to-day lives or it takes a big reminder like a scare of something almost happening that, that makes us maybe step back and think about it but um, hopefully people listening, at least through hearing your experience, will think a little bit more about it too. Yeah. And, and, and if it, uh, forgive me, Julie, just to even make it a bit on the personal side, like, you know, I've, you know, this has happened to me firsthand. Like I, I, my old man passed away about two years ago and he was living in Ghana, in Ghana. And, you know, there was that spidey sense in my back of my head that saying like, you know, should I go visit? Should I, you know, I know he, was, he had Parkinson's and he was, seemed like he was doing okay, but there was a voice in the back of my head that, that was telling me, like, maybe you should reach out, maybe you should try and go and see him. And a few weeks later, get that phone call that I'll never forget saying that he passed unexpectedly. And uh, it's one of the biggest regrets that I have in life is not being able to be there with my old man or to say goodbye formally. and. Um, um, so not only am I saying it's not random advice, I've lived it myself. And, uh, so I just really want to reinforce that to all the people out there. Yeah. Well, we've all lived it in some degree and thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and you, you also made me think of when you were explaining just how, you know, sort of how things can change on a dime, just how fragile, you know, you're seeing before your eyes, how fragile life is, but also how, resilient humans can be in the things that they can come back from. Um, and I know, you know, one of the other things that we, we talked about we have in common is that we're both very passionate about prevention mm-hmm. and it seems a little bit odd, right? For someone who's spending all of his time focused on, you know, the very acute patients and end of life care to have such a strong passion for prevention also, which is the completely different end of the spectrum. So how, where did your interest in prevention start and then continue to grow to where it is now? I'll tell you, you know what it comes from? And I don't know if we're allowed to cuss on this, but like, it's the, like coming to the ICU is, it's, it's horrible. It's a bad experience. You come out of there, not the same person. You are not as strong. You go through PTSD, you go through depression, you go through anxiety. It's a horrible experience. And so I want you to come here when you need to come here. Right. And we'll do our best to get you back to where you need to be, but you don't want to come see me. You don't want to come and see my team or be in an intensive care unit if you don't have to. And Part of the driver of this is one, you see the patient experience. Two, we our research group, we we focus on resource use and like how to reduce spending and 
and make healthcare more sustainable. Like it's part of what spawned the, the, the podcast. And by far, mm-hmm. if you do not walk in the door of the hospital or an ICU, you are going to save millions. Like people don't understand how expensive acute care medicine is. Like, for example, you like um, ICU costs or critical care costs represent 1% of your gross domestic product in the U.S. and just a little bit under that in, in Canada. Like, that's crazy. Like, 1% of a lot is a lot. So once again, <laughs> if you do not step in, that's a lot of money that could still be going towards prevention for new weight um, uh, programs to get us healthier in general, like just a better use of our resources. And so that's where it really spawned on me. And then I'm, I'm new to a lot of the nutrition world and, and what, what COVID has really screamed to the world, and we're not talking about it for some reason, is how metabolic health is a huge driver of how sick you are. Mm-hmm. And, and when I learned about how many things we could be doing to reverse metabolic disease and how quick we could do it, mm-hmm. my mind was blown. Right. I was literally like, what the hell? How are we not preaching this to the, like, to the world? And why is this not making mainstream media? So once I got caught wind of this, I'm like, yo, we got to friggin' hustle and let people know, man. And so that's where it's kind of spawned, uh, like, the, pre- the preventative side. So it's relatively new to me, but it's as you learn more and more about uh, disease Prevention is the key, man. It like why get sick in the first place? Mm-hmm. Don't get sick. Don't don't come. You know what I mean? Like why why are we gonna wait till your end stage or sick as a dog before we try and provide you with help? Like no, let's let's be smarter with our minds, resources, and approaches. Like it just doesn't make sense when you think about it. Really, like you all would like a lot of time we're just putting band aids on. Sh- like you know what I mean? Like let's get to the root cause and, and really stop you from entering the door, you know? Sorry, I didn't mean to rant and cuss so much. No, I love it's it. Just, I, it's <laughs> just, uh, I get a little bit uh, animated about it because it just, it's so intuitive right. and we don't put money in. Right, anyways, it's sorry. So it's just, it's, it's so backwards. Crazy. We have a, a big battle to fight, but, um, but yeah, you mentioned COVID, which I think is, is a great sort of topic to move to because we already knew a lot of this stuff, right? Before COVID happened, we knew that, you know, if you weren't metabolically healthy, you're more likely to develop all these chronic diseases and end up with the end stage problems that may land, you know, someone in the ICU, or you're more likely to get infections that make you really sick and end up, you know, maybe needing ICU care if you get pneumonia or something like that. But now suddenly with COVID-19, we've got this microscope on, you know, everything's happening so fast. It's very unknown and people are really starting to pay attention. So first, I'd just love to know what your experience has been like this year, um, you know, from first hearing about it to then taking care of patients through the pandemic. Um, and then what are some of the observations you've had um, in taking care of the really sick patients? Oh, thanks for that, Julie. Because it, it really has been, I've, I've, I haven't had an experience like this in my career. Like, the beginning of the pandemic, when you're seeing what was happening in New York, you're hearing about what was happening in Italy, and then we start to, like, I was there at my hospital, I was there for the, when the first case came in. We were so scared. Mm-hmm. We were so anxious. We were like, is this the beginning of the end? We hear about healthcare providers getting sick. We, we hear about, um, you know, the, the volume that's potentially going to come. And so I haven't been in an environment where we were this anxious at work ever. And I lived through H1N1 too. So, and, and, but once we started to see uh, the cases come in, once we start to realize that we were able to protect ourselves with the personal protective equipment in, in Canada, we weren't running out um, like we were seeing on TV. Um, once we got a sense of their trajectory what was working to getting the patients better and what, what wasn't, man, like the nerves start to settle. We were never overrun in, in, in our hospitals uh, in Canada either. And there was actually this unbelievable 
morale that was coming through because the, the whole country, the whole world was behind what we were trying to do and, and getting our patients better. And I had this one moment of, it was, uh, we were dealing with a fairly young guy uh, who was, you know, uh, quite jovial. I got to chat with him. He's a family man uh, around the same age as me. And similar to a lot of the COVID patients, they were doing okay. And then all of a sudden they weren't. Mm -hmm. And this guy went from needing a bit of oxygen to needing the most amount of oxygen we could give his kidneys start to fail. All the, the bad stuff that we were fearing was happening. And this is one of our early cases. And we all look at each other. This is like two in the morning. We have about 12 people in the room, putting our heads together and be like, you know, like, we can't lose this guy. Like, this is crazy. And as a unit, kind of like we were talking about earlier as a team, it's like, okay, we need to put him on his stomach. Let's do that. Which is not easy, By you, you hear, read about proning. When you, uh, we had to prone him. Had to put a dialysis catheter in. Before doing that, had to wheel him to a CT scan to make sure we weren't missing anything. All these kind of little mini steps that we had to do to just try and make sure that his life was saved. And, you know, hours later, things stabilize and we look at each other as, as a team and we're like, we did good today, man. This was unbelievable work. And the reason I say this story, not only is that patient home and thriving now, but the, the fact that uh, we were such a, a cohesive unit mm -hmm. and, a, and we had that one purpose and, and, you know, to get him better. And we felt the love from the community after experiencing something like that. I was actually looking forward to going to work. I was like, we are a team. We're a unit. We're doing good for mankind. That sounds cheesy. but And so, like, the experience, that experience was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And despite COVID being intimidating, because of that uh, camaraderie and that common goal, we just, we bonded. And it was, it was, um, it was, I actually, like I said, look forward to going to work during that time. Yeah. Um, so it, it was, it was really eye opening, and you know, and and over the last few months now, like one thing that's clear to me is that we've been better at managing COVID patients. Like we initially we were had the approach of intubating them early. We realized that was not beneficial, so we've been delaying things. We start steroids. Some people go on blood thinners and a lot of times our patients are doing quite well. So I, you know, it's been a, a, a whirlwind uh, experience for sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's a, it's a great example of how you know, oftentimes it's going through hard things together that really brings people closer together. And that's really cool that you said you felt that with your team even more than usual. And um, I think also really cool for the rest of the world to, to also really see and appreciate the marvels of modern medicine. You know, I think yeah. a lot of times it goes underappreciated, but when you really, like you said, when you need it, you really need it. And I think the rest of the world has really been able to see that during this time. Yeah. And, and it's, it really is a miraculous sometimes when you, you look at what, what it takes sometimes to salvage a life and that it, the, the fact that it works and the fact that like the, the patient I was thinking about now, like he's home. You know, like, and just like to not just, you know, not just as uh, he just didn't just survive, but he got functional. He got back to where he needed to be. And, but yeah, it's, it's, um, oh man, it, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. What sort of patterns, if any, have you noticed about whether it's COVID or anything else about the people who come into the ICU who end up bouncing back or doing not bouncing back to the hospital, but bouncing back to their lives and doing really well versus those that struggle more. Oh man, I love that question. <laughs> I love it because I think it's it's something that probably that you and I both see, and that a lot of the the people that do well, they they, they share a few things in common. They are clearly healthier, like metabolic metabolically, physically like uh workout like they take care of themselves and then the mindset mm -hmm. of like um of believing that they can get better mm -hmm. i can't i can't like if i was gonna say what probably is one of the most important things it's gotta be like i i feel like it is that mindset element of telling themselves i can overcome this i will be able to get through this 
and putting in that effort every step of the way is 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 monstrous but um like i'll give you another example i had a a patient that uh, in the icu who he's in his now in his late 70s at the time he was mid 70s had a really bad accident uh, broke his neck and this gentleman works out 5 days a week he's up every day at 5 with his wife at the, at the local gym hustling you know what i'm saying and i could get, and he's home now he's shovels his snow he'll uh he'll uh, mow his lawn like he's a functional uh man in his late 70s and if it wasn't for his physical status before coming into hospital if it wasn't for his mindset of no feeling like he need uh could get better he wouldn't be home now and definitely it's a it's a mon those elements are monsters when it comes to getting out of the acute care and, and getting back to where you want to be oh yeah for sure i'd love to dig into the mindset a little bit more too because that's something that i think i i mean i certainly see but um it's interesting because I think a lot of times in medicine, when we give prognoses that can affect people's mindset, like sometimes people want to know, you know, how many months do I have? But a lot of times those numbers, you know, they're from big studies that, that maybe not apply to that specific person sitting in front of you. So how do you approach that? Or what are some of the things you do as a doctor to help people nurture maybe a more positive mindset? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The, First off, like when it comes to giving prognosis with patients, I, I'm sure you do this too, Julie. I always check with what they want. Like, are they a numbers person? Are they someone that wants to know uh, exactly what the evidence is showing? Because not everybody wants to because right. of that reason that you're alluding to. It might mess up their, their mindset. Um, so I am personally a, a, a believer of being real, but not taking away all levels of optimism or hope and and so like if they want to know what the what the true prognosis is and what we are expecting i'll be absolutely upfront with them like if they want to know the numbers and they got a, aggressive pancreatic cancer and the numbers tell you that you have four months to live i'm going to tell you that and the reason i want to tell you that is so that you could connect with family you could get your affairs in order you could do all the stuff that will that are important um, and, and so that you can make uh, proper decisions on life. But they come to me and say like, doc, I'm going to remain optimistic. I know that you're saying 96% chance of dying within the year, but I could be that 4%. I'm going to keep eating well. I'm going to be exercising. I'm like, yeah, that's right. wrong, son. Who is wrong? Uh, you know, like we, we, you know, those numbers don't necessarily reflect, reflect you. You know, like it, it, that, as you said, it's a, it's a gross estimate of, you know, you know, number of patients and this is the average. Another example, uh, we interviewed Cindy Hooper on our show. You would love her, by the way, this story. So Cindy Hooper is, um, she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2013. Okay. Um, and for those that don't know pancreatic cancer, it is bad. Uh, prognosis is poor. She was told that she was unlikely to live past uh, two years. This woman, you know, saw the numbers and said, you know what, that's, it's, you know, this is the average person, but I'm not average. Mm -hmm. She was a triathlete. She, uh, in fact, ran and or completed an Ironman triathlon while on chemotherapy. Wow. Cycled every uh, to all her radiation appointments, she cycled out to radiation appointments, didn't miss one of them, and she's alive today and thriving. Wow. Okay? She's alive today and thriving. And, and you know, this is the cases that you don't hear about, but mindset was there. Physical status was there. You know, that uh, compete was there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you hear tell the, these stories about, you know, the times that everyone you know, thought that uh, the chips were against her and, mm. and she overcame. It's just, it, I get chills just thinking about it, but wow. absolutely just to reinforce that, that mindset that, that, that being healthy, eating well and believing like it's, it's everything. It can make all the difference. Mm -hmm. 
And it's true. Like you, I think you mentioned just controlling the things that you can control. You know, those are all things you can control. And like you said, there's a lot of things in life that can happen that you maybe have no control over. Um, but why not make yourself as resilient as you can in case something does happen? Yeah. And uh, as, as you said, like, and the journey to become more resilient, um, you learn a lot about yourself. You, 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 you often are um, surprising yourself of what you're made out of. It, it's just a lot of upside with little downside. So true. So true. I love it. Well, we can talk about that all day, but <laughs> I also <laughs> do want to touch on racism because I know obviously it's something that has been talked about a lot, especially in the media lately, but it's something that you've been dealing with your entire life. Um, you mentioned your parents immigrated from Ghana. Um, can you talk first maybe just about some of the experiences you've had through your life maybe early on, but then also in medicine specifically? Yeah, I've, um, like, a, like I said, I grew up in Edmonton. I was one of the few black kids around. Um, and at a very early age, I was quite aware of my color and my skin. I'm being called every name you could think of, especially in the hockey setting, like uh, as early as five, six years old, being called the N-word, uh, you know, being called monkey, go back to Africa, all these things that, uh, you know, were just almost, almost felt like it was just part of the culture back then. And, you know, and it was hard, like, it was hard. You were always aware of your skin color. You, because I was a, one of the few black kids, like you always knew there was eyes on you. Like you were, you were never, like you stuck out like a, always, you know, so you always had to be cognizant of how you're behaving, who, you know, just because you know that you're under a wider lens or whatever the expression is, and so you know it's it, it's hard. Like you, you at some points you regret. I remember wishing I was not black. You know, I wish I had a different name. Uh, wish my parents weren't from 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 Ghana, and you know, I, I think these are normal experiences as a kid when you you go through something similar, and and you know I. I often tell uh, the story about my dad. He was, I remember being in, in my teens and coming home with a report card that was improved from the prior semester or whatever term. And I remember thinking, bringing this to dad and thinking he's going to be proud. And he's like, you know what? This ain't good enough. I'm like, he's like, look at the color of your skin. I'm like, you can't be you're going to be competing with the Mike Johnsons of the world. Okay. And if you have the same marks as Mike, who do you think they're going to take? Like get real. You got to hustle, man. You got to overcome. You got to be a step ahead of all these guys. You got to make sure that you have no excuses. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the time I'm like, dad, you're like relax. But I look at my career and it's always been needing to make those extra steps. You know, um, whether that's, you know, I don't want to say getting into medicine. I, I, I don't think that was a, a, a major factor, or at least that not, not obviously. But, you know, when it comes to getting an academic job, when trying to get respect within the field, like I, I gave a talk two days ago at our critical care conference about our research group. We had, you know, in three years, 60 academic papers in BMJ and, and intensive care medicine, like high impact papers. Yeah. We, uh, um, in that conference, 20 out of 160 abstracts were bought from our group alone. And year after year, I'm asking them, like, do you want us to present, you know, some of our, our, our stuff to the group and I, and never get a word from, uh, as a reply. And the only time they asked me to talk, uh, was this year and it was on racism. Mm. And I, I said it straight up. I'm like, I'm only being asked to talk here on, based on the color of my skin, not on the merit that our group has been hustling yeah. and, and, and trying to produce great content on. And, and so it's just been like your whole life. You just feel like you're having to prove yourself. Like I even look at it, you know, within our, my job, I've, no one has had to go through more hoops to get to where uh, I landed. So it's, it's, it's tiring. It's exhausting. Um, you know, it's, 
in medicine, it's often less blatant than than the George Floyd incidences of the world, but it's it's just it's tiring. It's hard, and um, it's got to stop. And I think after George Floyd, seeing those rallies and seeing how people are really are seeing this as an issue and wanting to do something about it has been very um, like there's reasons for optimism. I just my skeptic nature in me is like it's great that we're doing this but what's the action what what is your group what is our organizations what is your country doing to really address it and um that's a kind of i guess a long-winded way of answering that question but uh you know it's just a topic that i i have a you know obviously feel very passionate about and and can be difficult to talk about though yeah uh, yeah, well, thank you for sharing all of that. I cannot imagine. And I think the example that you gave of presenting at the conference was very, to me, that's very interesting because it's, it's again, you know, having to feel like you're having to prove yourself beyond what anyone else is, is doing, even when you're doing good work. Um, that's really, really eye-opening. And it's in, in how many different settings that it bleeds into. It's not you know, it's, it's really in every aspect of life. Yeah. I mean, I was just using that as an example acutely, but it's just, you know, literally, you know, every step of the way. And one thing I will say to some of the racialized people listening, like, you know, the, the anger and is okay. Actually, in some ways I wanted you to be angry, but it's what are you going to do about it? And one of the things I always say to the kids is, is that anger, use it as fuel, use it as fuel and say, Hey, you, you put these obstacles in front of me and yet I still overcome. And now I'm freaking resilient. I am, I got my body armor on. There's more I can handle and more likely to be an inspiration to some, to the youth, more likely to be a role model. And, uh, so even though that those obstacles are in front of you, like in, in a lot of ways, they're going to make you strong. They're going to make you, you know, resilient. And, and so, you know, you, don't let that stop you. Yeah. I love that. And I saw too, that you're through, um, is it through your podcast or through the research network that you actually have um, a mentorship program yeah. for black youth in medicine, which is really cool. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. It's one of the, you know, it's one of the things like I, I'm sure you feel, this way through the podcast, like so many beautiful things come out of it. And one of the things that has come through is starting this black youth mentorship program. Cause you know, we, we, I interviewed this uh, valedictorian for one of our med school classes, uh, Chika Oriwa, and she was the only black kid in, uh, in uh, 250 among 250 med students wow. in, in Toronto which is our most like that's the blackest city that we have and her advocacy for really trying to promote you know having black um kids getting through medicine and and realizing that this was an issue really inspired me so i was like you know what you're a kid and you're thrown down like this is my turn you know and because so we started this mentorship program because we we need role models like like Another story I had was weeks before that, uh, there was a, a, a black patient and a young black patient and he saw me walking through the ICU and, and goes, he goes to the nurse. He's like, is that a doctor? And he's, and he's, and the nurse was like, yeah, it's Dr. K. And, um, he's like, that's amazing. So cool or whatever. And I, and she tells me this story and I'm like, that's not cool that they think it's awesome to see a black, another black doctor. In the city of a million people, like this is crazy. So the short version is, we, we just wanted to be able to tell the black youth, saying like, you could do this. You could get a seat at the table. This is, and we're going to have some mentorship to sit, to give you a sense of what it's going to take, and allow you to be able to to network and to really get a sense of what you need to do to get to to achieve your your goals of being in medicine. And so, yeah, that that spawned in the last few months, and got a meeting tomorrow. Uh, ironically, our, our very first uh, mentee is named Kwajo as well. So it's uh, <laughs> it's been fun so far. 
meant to be. That's exciting. Exactly. Well, on the topic of mentorship too, I know you have three sons. So going through <laughs> this time must be crazy. I mean, with the pandemic and everything going on in the world, what are some of the things that you hope to instill in them um, to have the same kind of resilience that you've had? Yeah, what are the fantastic question oh man I, I, I i'm i'll say this i'm a very proud father like i'm very like this is probably um like all dads say the same thing but i it really means a lot to to me to to raise good people good people that are going to contribute contribute to society and and believe in themselves and have that level of resilience and i, I give a lot of thought to this because you know they're where you know they're not poor they they go to good schools they get a lot of opportunity and so they don't you know they don't struggle the same way a lot of other kids might be doing but for us it's all about you know really appreciating the situation that they're in not not helicoptering them like you know i was alluding to letting the kids play and you know let them fall let them hurt themselves cuz they got to real, realize that they can overcome obstacles you know I, I i really think it's important for that and so that's our kind of between my wife and i it's our biggest thing is to you know really establish that the kids can be resilient and whatever tools that they need to be able to do that like this is our approach like no spoon feeding like you got to there's some situations you just going to have to work your way through um but yeah it is crazy raising kids it's been a challenging time like the midst of the, the the pandemic when they're all at home and like <laughs> anyone that has uh, three kids, they'll know like it is busy. It is challenging. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I hope the kids when at the end of the day, they become, you know, uh, kind, uh, compassionate, empathetic human beings that are contributing well and, 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 and have that level of resilience too. Wow, that is beautiful. Sounds like you're a great dad and have a great family. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, okay, so I want to start to summarize sort of as we get towards the end. You know, we've talked about a lot of different things, and I think you just have such unique vantage points in so many different ways. Um, so maybe we can summarize kind of on a few of them. The first one being being able to take care, we kind of touched on it already, but being able to take care of so many patients who are in really critical condition or at the end of their life, um, best advice that you would give people about living their life to the fullest? Best advice? Live now. Mm-hmm. Stop, stop saying like, I'm going to do this when. Don't, and just, you can wait till you retire. You could wait a few more years where you think your savings are going to be more. But there's no guarantees, man. I can't count how many times I've seen uh, a nurse doctor saying like, oh, I'm going to make that trip to Thailand when I retire. Three days after they retire, you find out they got that terminal diagnosis. Like live now and, and have that mindset of uh, stop saying I'm going to be happy when. Like be appreciative of the situation we're in now. Like I know there's a lot of people struggling and I know it's easy, easier said than done. But there's no guarantees tomorrow is going to be brighter. And, you know, I, turn to the people that are with you now and let them know how much you love them. Be appreciative that they're with you and uh, really focus on the now. I love that. That's awesome. Okay, then moving into the topic of COVID-19 for people who, you know, you've taken care of a lot of really critical ill patients with COVID-19. For people who are worried just worried going around in the world about maybe coming down with it or maybe a loved one coming down with it. What advice would you give to them? Yeah, I'd say just be smart. Like I think we've learned a lot about COVID over the last few months. And like one thing that's clear to me is that, that, you know, in terms of spread, you know, sustained indoor close proximity exposure is what's going to get you COVID. All right. So if you're meeting with friends, meeting with families, do it outside, do it at a distance, keep your mask on. If you're indoors and it's, there's a group, keep your size of your meeting small, like 
these, I, I'm convinced all these little steps help. The masks, like one thing to me is clear that the more viral load that you get exposed to, the more likely you're to be sick. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're all masking, I think has made a difference. Because one thing I, I, sorry, I didn't mention Julie before is I don't have data to back this up, but just from what I see at the bedside, mm -hmm. people that are coming in now are less sick than when they were coming in early in the pandemic. And that's why I, in my head, I, I wonder a lot of that has to do with masking the less viral load that you get exposed to and what have you. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're smart about things, you know, wash your hands, uh, you know, uh, routinely, like, you, like you're significantly reducing your risk of getting sick from COVID. Then the other aspect is like, get your metabolic health on point now there's no there's no reason not to like seriously if you want to get uh whether it's going to be fasting whether it's going to be something like just whole foods whether it's going to be uh carnivore whether it's going to be uh plant-based whether it's going to be um keto or low carb i don't care yeah. <laughs> use your poison but it's it, these things work like you find out what works for you it doesn't take long to reverse disease and not only are you reducing your risk of COVID, but uh, hypertension, di uh, diabetes, strokes, heart attacks, cancer, all are wins. Yes. And uh, so, like, let's get on it, people. Love it. Yeah, there's very little downside. And it's not one or the other, right? Like, we, uh, we can yes. do that. get our metabolic health in order, and we can also wear our masks and wash our hands and be smart about how we're living our lives. So I Absolutely. think I'm glad that you brought that up. And coming from an ICU doctor too, it's not <laughs> not all one thing. We have to all all do everything we can to kind of take care of ourselves and each other. Absolutely. All right. Then the last um, topic that we sort of covered, um, what advice would you give? I know, and I know that, again, this sort of puts you in a position that you're put in a lot where people are turning to you for advice just because of the color of your skin and the experiences you've been through. But like you said, we want to see more action. What are some of the actions that you'd love to see maybe your white colleagues take, even yeah. even small things or big things that you'd like to see your white colleagues take that could help um, eliminate racism? I got lots. Okay. Be kind. Be empathetic. None of this all lives matter BS. I mean, when you hear someone say black lives matter, they're not saying black lives are better. They're not even saying black lives are equal. They're saying they matter. Okay. This is not a reason to be offended. This is not a reason to be uh, oppositional. Be kind, be empathetic, realizing that that person has gone through a ton in their life and not a single person of color in either of our countries has not gone through something that they have, that has been horrible. Okay. Like, be compassionate, be kind, um, call it out. Someone's saying some racist comment in front of your, in front of you, stop waiting for the, 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 the racialized person to have to say something because that is, that's difficult on them. It's, it's highly pressure situation. They might not feel like they're in a, in a position to say something, but everyone step up. Don't tolerate it. Absolutely not. Do not tolerate it. Um, embrace diversity. Like diversity, if you look at all the major, you know, whether you're business tech or what have you, the more diverse, the stronger your company is, the more profitability you'll have, you'll win. Embrace it. It's there for a reason. Um, and then to my, what I'll say to my racializer black community, rise up, man. Time to hustle. Get a seat at the table so you could speak for your people that you could represent for your people. This is the time, man. Like this is, we see the, um, you know, the issues with police violence. We see the poor outcomes that we're having, like health outcomes we're having for our racialized people. By being at the table, you were in a position to do something about it. And it just, we need, we need you more than ever. Wow. I love it. You're getting me fired up. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's, that's impressive for someone with your credentials to get y'all <laughs> fired up. I love it. Okay. Well, last three questions that I ask everyone on the podcast. The first one is what are the three things that you do personally on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? My health? I would say this is going to be 
so definitely working out is part of my life from an early age. It's therapeutic. It gets you obviously in, in good uh, physical uh, health as well. Second, I would say that is uh, that has helped a ton is um, I think meditation. I, I often was doing it because I think I was told to do it, but just because I, you know, you read about it and you think it's going to be good for you. But I just feel like I'm that much more calmer. I have less adrenergic or less like uh, fight or flight. Um, I'm more sound like um, in touch with my kids when I'm more in a, in a calmer state. And it's helped with the stress of the job, like especially during this time of year. I was going to, ha- I was going to say just with your job, it is such a high adrenergic state job. Like you said, you never know what's coming in the door. It's moving yeah. fast. So, so that's, I think that's a really good point for, for people listening, knowing, you know, what kind of environment you're in all the time, then how do you counter that maybe in your downtime? Yeah. And you need, and just, you know, I don't know how many people are future ICU docs or ER, you know, high stress situation It's like that self-care is so important is so important. Keeping yourself fresh for next time that you're in the IC or in those high stress uh, times allows you to think clear, be the better, you're better able to make better decisions. So it's so important. And then the third thing I would say, like in terms of health and wellness and all that stuff is audiobooks and podcasts. Love that. Like, the, those things, like, especially when you could, you know, before audiobooks and podcasts, I would read a book a year. Now I could, like, I'm a big Audible fan, so I'll go through 18 books a year now. Don't judge me, but I listen to 1.5 or double speed, depending on the content. And, um, yeah, that's just helped a lot for whether it's life hacks, learning about nutrition, um, all these kind of uh, content that helps with well-being, productivity, too. That's a big uh, area of interest for me. So uh, I'd say those are the three. That's great. Well, I have a few follow-up questions. One being, what is your workout routine? What do you like to do? Oh, I love these questions. Because <laughs> um, I never I never get to talk about it with anybody. Um, so my traditional workout style was, like pre-COVID was, um, I guess the last one I was doing was a, a program by Dan John called Easy Strength. So I was doing actually whole body workouts five days a week, but the program is, is is focused on strength training. So you're not actually ever pushing yourself to extreme. The, 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 the main idea is that you were almost like a farmer or construction worker. Like, you know how the, like farmers are the strongest yeah. people you've ever come across? Yeah. And they're not necessarily lifting the heaviest weight ever all the time, but they're constantly lifting. And so the idea is that you're training your, ner- uh, your nervous system and you're recruiting more muscle by doing it on a regular basis. So I was doing, uh, so every day, well, five days a week, like um, push, press, uh, swing, hinge, and uh, uh, weighted, weighted carries. And I've, and I've been able to, every step of the way, get uh, improve my, like, uh, like I'm going up on weights. So that was good before COVID. And then for, well, during COVID, because you couldn't go to a gym, I started going wicked with the kettlebell stuff. Nice. And uh, that has actually changed a lot. Like I've, uh, I'm about the same weight. My body fat percentage went down, um, still strong. So I'm a big, big fan of that. That's awesome. Yeah, it doesn't take much. One kettlebell can crush you. You can do a lot with that thing. Right? Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Um, other question, any book recommendations, things that you've read recently that you really loved? Oh, man, this is... So there's a couple of books that changed my life, I would say. Yeah. One of them was along the lines of the four-hour work week, or there's one, I forgot the author's name, but it's the Pareto's Principle, the 80-20 rule. Yes. Mm-hmm. And basically, I, I, my life is focused on being as efficient as possible. So the Pareto, the Pareto Principle is, for example, if you're a business owner, 80% of your revenue will come from 20% of your client. So the argument is to focus on that 20% so you could optimize revenue. Same thing happens for happiness, quality of your workouts, 
people that you that bring you joy. So my whole mantra is always to try and find that 80-20. My research, what's the best approach to have that mo- biggest impact or uh, allow me to be as productive as possible? It was one of the steps that allowed me to hire my first research, research assistant on my own money, with my own money, just to be able to be as efficient as possible. So that book changed my mindset and has actually led to a lot of uh, some of the success that we've had. So that one is the one that comes to mind. Um, I'd have to think harder about different topics, but um, that for sure is my my, uh, go-to. I haven't read the book, but I've heard the principle a lot. So maybe I need to go read the book because it it makes so much sense. Yeah. The book is a little repetitive, but just the the way where where you end up at, at the end, where you, the way you think about things, about the people in your life, uh, it's, it's, it's gold. That's great. Okay, next question is, what is one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you haven't implemented it yet or something you struggle with? Man, this is an easy one. <laughs> like mobility. Oh, my God. I don't know <laughs> if I told you this before. Like I, up to two years ago, I couldn't put, do a back squat because my shoulder – my shoulder mobility is horrible. It still is. Um, definitely mobility, flexibility. I've, I'm better than I've ever been in my life. But man, to be able to be functional, like that 80-year-old that could still, you know, um, put a book in, or put books on the top shelf or, you know, pick up your grandkids two at a time. Like, I want to be that guy. So to me, that is one thing that uh, I've, could do better on. And I would love, I just, I'm still looking for once again, kind of 80, 20, like a routine I could do almost daily or easily to, to, to kind of address mobility. Um, I just haven't really found one yet. And, um, but man, that is a, a monster one that would have a lot of bank for like, that would have a lot of value. Yeah. That's huge. That's huge. And something that I know a lot of, a lot of people struggle with. Um, Last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you? You know, a healthy life is all about, it's about function and it's about connection. It's about, you know, being able to achieve your goals. So so for me, it's somebody that kind of alluded to that 80-year-old that could still play with their grandkids and, and throw, I'd love to still be able to throw a football to you know, or throw a baseball, um, and to feel connected. I think that's one thing that is COVID has also taught us how important that is. Um, you know, it was ironic during the heights of the pandemic, I hadn't talked to some people in years and because we're all stuck at home, we're, you know, whether it's zoom or FaceTiming, you're connecting with people you haven't done with, talked with in, in, in ages. And, you really, it really pointed out how important that is. So, you know, to me, a healthy life would be able to, you know, still be able to move and, and be active, but also feel connected to friends and family. And, uh, and yeah. I love it. Wow. Well, great note to end on. Thank you again so much for all of your time and for sharing. I know a lot of these topics are difficult to talk about. So thank you for sharing so many great insights and stories and where I know people can listen to your podcast, solving healthcare, where else can they find you or learn more about what you're up to? Yeah. Uh, thanks for that, Julie. Uh, like all things solving healthcare.ca. You'll, you'll learn more about myself. Uh, we have links to our research, our podcasts, our events that are up and coming. And uh, yeah, so anything you need to learn about me is at selfinghealthcare.ca. And can I just say something real quick about pursuing health? Oh, this is this is what it's all about, you guys. Just addressing prevention, talking to the people that you know that are that um, are like-minded, and getting that word out, and having a platform where, at a very affordable cost, people can learn more about how to get healthy, about preventative medicine. This is what I'm talking about, changing that boogie. I love it. And this is the future of medicine as far as I'm concerned. So like, if people aren't jumping on the train, I'm just, here's another person saying you need to continue to jump on that train. For real. 
I love it. Changing the boogie. Maybe I'll start using that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. That'd be a privilege. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Quadro. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into the episode. As always, I'll recap my three biggest takeaways from the conversation with Dr. Karamanting. My first takeaway was about Dr. Karamanting's advice to live now. It was really beautiful to hear him share his wisdom from caring for and being with patients at the end of life. And we can all stand to hear this advice. Don't wait to do the things we really want to do in life and be grateful for every moment that we have. My second takeaway was about the importance of taking care of ourselves and of others. Whether that's improving our metabolic health and building our resilience against any infection or chronic disease, wearing masks and being smart and considerate about our exposures, or anything else, this pandemic is a great reminder of how important it is for us to take care of ourselves while caring for those around us too. And my third takeaway was that we can all do our part to fight racism. I was so grateful to Dr. Karamanting for sharing some of his own difficult life experiences with regard to racism here. As he says toward the end of the conversation, there is so much we can all do to help. Be kind and be compassionate. Be the first to call it out and rise up. Hope you had some great takeaways from this conversation too.